Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpha for the Union Pilots of JetBlue. Now from New York, Ride Report. Well, hello once again, and welcome back to Ride Report. I'm your host, J.R. Hall, Central Air Safety and Vocal Gatekeeper. A few quick reminders here. We always appreciate our pilots' feedback, and if we've missed something or need to expand on something, get in touch with us quickly. Follow up with a PDR to the Ride Report podcast. Only recently, and, and really for most of us, in the last couple of months, the topic of 5G connectivity has come to the forefront of aviation and to that safety. But how did we get here? No matter the side or opinion, most often recently, the questions are, did this just happen all of a sudden? How did this just come up? Does this really affect aircraft? Or some others are, this has been delayed long enough. I'm ready to get my faster data, turn it on already. There are a wide variety of opinions on the 5G network and specifically into this new band. Some are definitely fringe, some are factual, and some are just downright incorrect. One side perhaps just doesn't understand the true root of the problem. And we as pilots most often don't understand all of the technical aspects with this new 5G C-band connectivity. But what we do know And what we will discuss here on this episode today are exactly what this is, why this specific 5G frequency spectrum is raising concern, and what does the path look like going forward. We've got an excellent group of people here that have been working not just with ALPA, but with other stakeholder entities as well for the last couple of months. Welcome back to the podcast, JetBlue ALPA Central Air Safety Chair, Blake Kelly. Blake, how are you? Good to be with you, JR, again. And new to the podcast as well as JetBlue Alpa ADO Chair Doug Marchese. Doug, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me today. Welcome to the podcast. Real quick, before we get started on this 5G and the C-band and, and all of the ongoing activity that you, your group, Blake, has been working on, give us a real quick uh, background of time at Alpa Fleet and Seat. Sure. Uh, Doug Marchese. I'm uh, currently a 320, uh, JFK 320SQ captain. I've been with JetBlue for about 10 years. Started working with ALPA back in about 2015 as the uh, fatigue chair. Headed up the fatigue committee till about, uh, about two years ago. Uh, I'm also on the national flight time duty time and started up the ADO subcommittee uh, last year in 2021. Well, we're really happy to have you here. And I know that a a large part of your daily activity has been involved in working with these different groups on 5G. Blake, kick this first question to you. This issue really does seem to just become acute recently, but hasn't this been an issue for some time? If you've got any, give us a little bit of background on, on where this started and how are we, where we are today. Sure, JR, and thanks for, uh, Thanks for putting this together. Yeah, um, I know our pilots may have noticed some of the recent headlines, specifically over the holiday season, um, as this issue has really started becoming uh, acute with with the implementation of 5G, uh, specifically deadlines being pushed back, but being on the near horizon. But really, this issue started back in late 2017, uh, when the FCC started releasing dockets for comment about releasing this what's called C-band 
a frequency band that is going to be used for 5G implementation by uh, telecommunication companies. While the C-band um, issue is, has been up for comment for some time, it's always been a concern, even when, it, when uh, public comment uh, opened up in, in late 2017 and most of 2018 with the concern of the C-band being in close proximity to the same frequency our radio altimeters use. So this is um, something that's been, been really been worked in the industry for some time. It's just now reaching ahead where the implementation is on top of us. A lot of this docket activity that you spoke about, there's probably very few of us that are familiar with that whole process. It would probably suffice to say that a vast majority of people on, on either the aviation side or the telecom side just just had absolutely no idea because they don't wake up. And the first the website they go to is to check out the public documents on DOT.gov or any other government websites to go look at this. Had they been doing that, they would have noticed a lot of activity already taking place instead of it just appearing as if it cropped up, right? Yeah, and what I mean by public comment and docket is 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 this real the real issue, and we'll get into it in this episode. Is is been how the government is managing the implementation of of utilizing this this frequency band for five G, one to support the commercial benefits of it, but then also obviously the part we're concerned about is the safety of the of the aviation system uh, with this implementation. So, you know, the FCC is the one that initiated this. They're the regulatory body that controls the release of this uh, and license this is the use of this frequency band. And that's been part of the issue of how the government works in this regard. So uh, the FCC follows its, its requirements of, of receiving public comment and engaging the industry on this. Um, and while aviation stakeholders, including ALPA, have, have been very vocal in the concern and the need to study and ensure the coexistence of the utilization of the C-band for 5G along with um, aircraft radio altimeters out there in the system. The problem is, is aviation has, has cited these concerns. However, the FCC has continued to move forward. And the trade organization for the telecom uh, companies, uh, CTIA, and the FCC have deemed it safe, yet they've not shared that information with aviation, have how they determine that the coexistence of these frequencies can, can be safe. And that's part of this issue here politically. And uh, unfortunately has put the FAA and the Department of Transportation and the aviation industry on a reactionary mode. So that brings us now to December of 2021 with this game of chicken, I guess, if you will, between two federal entities. We had originally heard January 5th. That was going to be the day where 5G was going to be turned on. And then we saw the FAA release a uh, airworthiness directive related to that date. But now there is a delay supposedly until January 19th. Where Where is the 5G implementation right now? Sure. So the, the, the first date that maybe was public was was January 5th. Specifically, the two companies that are planning to implement the C-band first, which is Verizon and AT&T. Um, actually, the date was originally December 5th. Through the discussions with all the stakeholders, the telecom- AT&T and Verizon agreed to delay their implementation until January 5th. And they also voluntarily implemented certain mitigations. So some of the things that the telecom companies 
point to is, is C-band has been implemented in other countries. However, the aviation industry has pointed to that 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 is the case. However, they have implemented it with certain mitigations, specifically, you know, the uh, antenna tilt, which, you know, make sure that the antennas are pointing downward, the power utilized by these transmitters, and also the location of, of where these transmitters can be and how close they can be close to airports or runways. So uh, the telecom companies this said, well, we'll delay implementation until January 5th and we'll turn down the power, even though it was the power, less power than they were implement, uh, planning to implement. Uh, it's still not to the power levels utilized in other countries. So the FAA, looking at this, decided to release an, an airworthiness directive, and, and Doug can get into the details of what the airworthiness directive requires. But essentially, the FAA said, okay, well, if, if we're going to have to coexist with 5G, we have to assume the possibility of 5G interference, we're going to limit approach capabilities of aircraft, um, specifically the low visibility auto land style approaches that, that we, we're familiar with. That was planning to, so they, they released the airworthiness directive on December 7th with the plan of uh, January 5th was the original implementation date. So they required operators to update their, their limitations on their aircraft that they couldn't do these kind of approaches uh, when certain 5G interference notums that would be released later. Um, the Department of Transportation, a lot, all the aviation industry lobbied heavily and the Department of Transportation was able to get the uh, AT&T and Verizon CEOs to agree to delay uh, the implementation again till January 19th. This, this deal not only delayed the implementation of 5G to give us, give the aviation industry time to to plan and react to this implementation, but also there's a there's an amount of sharing of data between the telecom companies and radio altimeter manufacturers to really work out the details of what possibilities of interference might be at certain airports. The whole issue up to this point has been that we're in aviation, we're a very safety-minded industry and we need data to disprove uh, possible safety risk before we can deem something safe. We finally have gotten that cooperation uh, with the telecoms to to work through the technical specifications and, and possibilities of 5G interference now. And so we're very much in a wait and see on that, what comes of those analyses going on. But at the same time, we have to plan that th this, the uh, AT&T and Verizon do plan to implement this on January 19th. And it's quite possible we'll have to operate under this airworthiness directive that the FAA has put out. Doug, I want to bring you in real quick on on the airworthiness directive, and we'll get into a lot more of the technical aspects of it here in a second. But but first, to to come to like the crux of the problem is the is the radio altimeters that are and, and us as pilots are are very very familiar with radio altimeters and how they work. We also know that all transport category aircraft mostly have them installed. Various manufacturers, if you will, is there a handful available. But not every aircraft has a radio altimeter installed, and and that is for for those that are that are listening that are not pilots that are not JetBlue pilots. The, the radio altimeter is really the only thing that that all three of us and any other pilot can rely on in instrument conditions where you can't see out the window. You, it's the only way that you truly know whether the airplane's ten feet off the ground or ten thousand feet off the ground. It all looks the same when you're flying through a cloud. It's all gray. 
that radio altimeter and how it plays with autopilot, other approach instruments, all of that's a very tangled web of using that very basic information of how high is the airplane from the ground. Did I, did I surmise that enough, Doug, or, or is there anything that I, that I missed or, or definitely need to add in? No, I mean, I think that the problem is that I think, as you know, and I think everybody knows, radio altimeters are far more integrated than I think you would initially think, right? It, it, it integrates into so many different systems. So part of the airworthiness directive that was put down requires uh, operators to assess the systems that are impacted and, and safety risk assess their operation if those systems are impacted. And the FAA put out a SAFO listing all uh, all systems that could be affected, and now the manufacturers have put are starting to put out documentation that lists the systems that are affected. It can it can go as deep as uh, auto land capabilities, auto thrust, uh, wind shear detection, avoidance, uh, so many different pieces of, to the puzzle, including uh, ground procs, taws, and that's also why it impacts certain approaches. So so ultimately, what the FAA did was they they limited the approaches that were the most affected by the radio altimeters. So when you look at the AD, it, it has several pieces to it. The first one uh, Blake alluded to, which is the uh, the AFM changes. So the AD itself requires the AFMs to integrate certain restrictions that I'll get into. So we saw the company release information notices for each fleet, and those uh, were simply checking the box, getting the AFM updates in so that we were legal. The original release date of the 5th required those AFM changes to be done on the 4th. So they had them in our manuals by the 4th. But those are just the first pieces of the AD. Mm. The AD itself calls for restrictions on approaches, and you can see those now in the AFM. So the approaches that are affected are the SA CAT1, CAT2, and CAT3, and certain uh, RMP-AR approaches. And I'll get a little bit more into the RMP-ARs and why those are listed and which ones are going to be affected. But the actual AD requires these restrictions, and then it also require, uh, restricts auto land and HUD to landing, or HUD to touchdown operations, which is a CAT3 or CAT2 approach using a HUD to touchdown. It doesn't mean using it throughout the entire uh, approach. It just means using it for a CAT2 or 3 approach that requires it for touchdown. These specific restrictions for specific airports and approaches are then turned on by NOTAM. So the AD exists but doesn't impact an airport or an approach until the NOTAM dictates it so. And, and so the concept there is that as they evaluate different approaches and they evaluate different airports, they will then put a NOTAM in place in turning on the restrictions laid out in the AD. These restrictions then can be alleviated by an alternative means of compliance put out by a manufacturer. Basically, a manufacturer's along with the RA manufacturers, are studying the impact of 5G interference with their specific RAs to see where they're impacted and where they're not. The AMOC process is currently ongoing. We don't have a whole lot from the manufacturers there on this, but what it sounds like is that an AMOC will be released for a specific airport and for specific approaches. So we may see scenarios where certain approaches are allowed and certain approaches are not based on the AMOC 
process, which I know gets a little convoluted. To, to go back to the NOTAMs, the NOTAMs will be released for areas and for approaches and for airports. So you'll see an area NOTAM that's really for rotorcraft that'll cover a specific area. The airport NOTAM will say that an airport is affected by 5G and then an instrument approach NOTAM will tell you which approaches are restricted based on the 5G impact. So you may see a CAT3 approach, CAT2 approach, NOTAMed out based on the 5G interference. RMP AR approaches are also listed because they require TAWS. In the certification process, there's a TAWS piece. That terrain avoidance piece is why they were listed. However, they are evaluating RMP approaches based on the terrain of the airports to see which ones they could potentially allow, and they're currently in the process of evaluating that. So an RMP approach that is not notumed would then be flyable. So it's, a, it's really coming down to what notums are released, and if those notums then drive you back to the AD, which then restricts the approaches and the autoland functionality of the aircraft. So Doug, I want to take it back to the, the low visibility approaches. If we won't be able to perform certain low visibility approaches like you're saying, could we talk about the operational impacts or consideration in part with that, the, the safety impacts and consideration, the AD requires an SRA, a safety risk analysis, to be done by the individual airlines. And I know you're a part of that as well. Are there any insights that you can share with us? Sure. So simply put, the AD required operators to look beyond just the restrictions to the approaches. The operator has to look at how RA interference could affect those systems laid out, like I said earlier in the SAFO, and assess those and see where mitigations would need to be put in place. So the company began working on this process. Our SRA process for, for JetBlue has several pieces to it. They look at a hazard, so and then they, they look at the consequences associated with the hazard. Then they assess that based on a specific risk criteria, or based on a the likelihood and the severity, and then they give it a risk level. They then look at current risk controls. They look at what we have in place that could potentially mitigate the risk associated, and then they look at potential future mitigations as well. We've been involved with the company throughout this process. Uh, we've been working alongside uh, the, the pilot writing the SRA. We've also been working with the fleet captains. It's currently still ongoing. Uh, they haven't completed the process yet as we learn more from the manufacturers and we look deeper into some of the systems. We've also been in contact with other airlines to see what risks they're looking at and how they may be mitigating them. But ultimately, the process has led to uh, several uh, risks. We can, as, as we go forward and, and in another podcast, discuss the actual aircraft fleet specific mitigators that will come out. We'll, we'll uh, look a little bit deeper at some of the risks, but they have broken them down based on phase of flight and, and different fleets to see where those risks where those risks lie. For the most part, they've been looking at, like I said, the systems that are laid out in the SAFO and the, the, the systems we have in place, but they've also been looking in terms of, because like you mentioned, the system itself, and they're, they're still looking at it from a dispatch perspective, how we're going to handle 
airports that do not allow for the low visibility approaches, uh, as well as um, alternate airports, fuel planning. Uh, there are so many pieces that kind of lay out from that, that that can be affected when you start to shut down low visibility approaches or RMPA approaches into certain airports with terrain. You need to start looking at it from the standpoint of dispatch uh, and uh, an awareness of the NOTAMs, how we're going to communicate out to pilots these NOTAMs, uh, and then also how are we going to you know, plan for potential interference uh, for an, an airplane that's on an approach or an arrival if they have interference that, that affects those systems we laid out like uh, wind shear or terrain, terrain avoidance, auto throttle, um, and how the national airspace system can handle that. So a lot of these issues are, are laid out in the risk assessments that they're working on, but like I said, they're not completed at this point in time. And it's only going to be time to, to fill in the gap between then and now. This is all airline-specific, too, if I'm correct. Listening to what you said, Doug, is that every airline is going to handle this differently. Yeah, so that's, that's very true. The, the, the problem is time is also limited. Uh, the, the new release is for the 19th. The NOTAMs haven't been released yet, but they should be soon. When the NOTAMs come out, that begins the next part of the assessment as to you know, what aer- airports are being affected. Um, we have until next week, until the actual rollout. And then as the manufacturers address AMOX, there'll be further rolling out of more spectrum throughout the year. So the impacts are going to be, I think, staggered. Each airline will handle it slightly differently. So you know, ideally, you know, we'll, we'll coordinate, discuss how they're laying, rolling out their mitigators, and we can, we, can, we can work alongside that. But right now, every airline is still working on SRAs as far as I know, and, and no one's completed anything yet as far as I know. Definitely, we're not looking for a or going to expect to see a one-size-fits-all fix. An operator for an A320 here is not the same as an operator for an A320 at another airline, yeah? Yeah, if I can jump in on that one, JR, um, we're already seeing that uh, just by the different how the different manufacturers are approaching this as well. Just in this short period of time, we're getting guidance from Embraer and Airbus, and we've heard Boeing operators have gotten guidance from Boeing. And as you dig into this, every fleet type is different. Every variant of a fleet type is different. And manufacturers are putting out uh, different guidance. So we are definitely going to see differences of, of how this is going to be mitigated on fleet to fleet. And then, of course, airlines are different operations. So we're definitely seeing differences there. Uh, and it's very dynamic. It's very dynamic right now. As, a, as we're recording this, it's quite possible we'll get new information to, tomorrow and the next day as we lead up to the 19th. Doug and Blake, I want to go back to the 5G and the C-band. And real quick, if we could touch on, for anybody that might not know, the wide area. I mean, this is coast to coast. And we've all seen the commercials where where all of these cellular companies are, are trying to sell this incredible new data transmission technology. This is all big cities that we serve on a regular basis, right? Yeah, JR. Uh, there's 46, um, they call them PEAs, uh, partial economic areas. Think of the entire Northeast, the Southeast in Florida, uh, Texas, um, and the West Coast all the way up through California to the Northwest. So definitely impacting a huge area of our network. I think there's over uh, 33 of the 38 busiest airports 
covered in these areas. I think 250 airports in total. Um, so it's a huge area that'll be impacted. And this is only the first wave of implementation as they expand the 5G network. Uh, and just so for pilots to understand, you know, you may look at your phone right now and see 5G. The reality is that that's to a lower, a lower uh, spectrum than they're going to be turning on. So though you may see it throughout the country, this is a, a change to what we already have. This is an, an increase in spectrum. So as, what you've seen before, this is a, an addition to that, just to kind of add that to it. it and that's how unique this the C-band really is. There is 5G that's existed. And, and I want to talk about other countries as well, because we mentioned that in the beginning of the podcast. And I think there might be something beneficial mentioned there as well. But, but this is definitely a different frequency spectrum that's providing that air quote 5G cellular connectivity. Yeah, it's, it's an increase from uh, 3,700 uh, megahertz up to initially 3,800 and then 3,980. And the radio altimeters operate at 4,200. So it's an increase in spectrum or an, an increase in frequency that goes up closer to what we already utilize in, in the RAs. And that's why it's becoming such a, an issue. And uh, other countries do have that. However, like Blake said earlier, they don't, they don't do it the way we're going to do it. They have lower power, they have lower angles, they, they have mitigators in place that we don't have. And that's why uh, it's, it's, it's different here than what they do elsewhere. There's a couple of countries that I think of just off the top of my head and becoming educated about this in the last couple of months that it's become uh, topical. France and Canada have both dealt with 5G towers surrounding airports, the risk of radio altimeter interference, and then their mitigations. Can you speak a little bit to those or, or any other countries that have maybe uh, followed in that same line to coexist amenably? I can jump on that one, JR, because um, we've even, as the United States aviation industry, um, have reached out to to other countries of how did this roll out in your country? And it was really, honestly, invisible to airlines and to pilots and, and to air traffic because the regulators in those countries, when they did their analysis, they implemented their own mitigations based on what their analysis showed. Um, so the equivalent of their FCC or their FAA uh, did this all in the background. And so, unfortunately, that's not playing out that way in the States, um, which makes this somewhat of a political issue that we're having to, as a, 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 on behalf of safety, you know, pushing the regulators involved here, the FAA, the Department of Transportation, the FCC, uh, even involving the White House and Congress at some levels to make sure that the safety case is there that this can be implemented and is being implemented in a safe way. Because like I mentioned, the, F the, the, the sharing of the data and ensuring that there won't be an interference with radio altimeters, that work hasn't been done to prove the case here in the States. Um, so that's kind of why we're having this difference of opinion. And it's why we're seeing, you might see in the media, this propaganda arguing on either side that it's it's completely safe. We, the aviation industry is overreacting versus uh, the aviation industry saying that there's a possible issue. There's definitely going to be a lot more to come. And we'll love to have the two of you back here probably sooner uh, rather than later once this 5G date comes a little bit closer, but with any of those changes as well. Central Air Safety Chair Blake Kelly, 
ADO chair, Doug Marchese. Any, any final words here before we wrap up this first part of uh, 5G discussion here on Ride Report? So yeah, JR. So uh, just in closing, you know, the, the Central Air Safety Committee and specifically the ADO subcommittee is working with the company to make sure that they're transparent and that safety is always paramount in the decisions that are being made here because we understand the implications of this 5G rollout. What we want to make sure is that all the information that we have and that they have gets to the pilots in a timely way and that uh, we're, we're making sure that everything is done in the safest way possible so that the pilots can be confident in the operation as we go forward. Very good. Blake? We, you know, Our goal with uh, getting this podcast out to the pilot group now is to give some background on this issue, which is, which is a frustrating one. Unfortunately, it's putting uh, our airline and the airline industry and then most importantly us as pilots kind of in a reactionary mode as we try to gather all the information we can to understand this issue. And like Doug said, uh, advocating for we can we can do this safely. More to come. Uh, definitely want to prepare our pilots for uh, as we approach the 19th. We still do not have a 100% view of what this is going to look like. But as, as Doug has highlighted, uh, he's working closely with the company as, a, as we are. Um, that a lot of information will come. It will come from the company. It will come from Alpa. Uh, the pilots need to be ready to assimilate that information and and read the uh, bulletins that will be come out and the communications that come out. Uh, as Alpa and I'm sure JetBlue will will, will issue any other cu- communication venues to make sure our pilots know everything they need to know to operate safely. Central Air Safety Committee Chair Blake Kelly and uh, ADO Chair Doug Marchese, guys, thank you so much for joining us here today on Ride Report and bringing us up to speed on on the latest, the beginning, where we are now with 5G and the implementation of the Airworthiness Directive. And as soon as we get some uh, some movement, either on uh, for for better or worse or some changes or implementation, uh, please come on back and, and join us and get us back up to speed here on Ride Report. Thank you, guys. Thank you, JR. Thank you, JR. Ride, Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpa for the union pilots of JetBlue.